Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Frank Bruni. And this is The Argument. Before we start, Michelle and I want to congratulate Ross on the newest member of his family. He posted a picture of baby Rosemary on Twitter. Totally adorable. You can take a look for yourself. Ross's Twitter handle is at DowthitNYT. That's D-O-U-T-H-A-T-N-Y-T. Okay, on with the show. Ross is still out on leave this week, but Yuval Levin is joining us to talk about fake news, real facts, and what both mean for public health. People tend to think that the expert is just a person with information. And so now information is available anywhere, and so anybody can be an expert. But an expert is a person with experience. From the very start of his administration, President Trump has shrugged off expertise, he's outright mocked experts, and he has shown special disregard for science. Even more dangerous, he has frequently presented fiction as fact. Now, that habit is front and center, and it has greater stakes than ever. I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute, and is there a way we can do something like that? Uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning. How can a president who dabbles in junk science guide us through a public health crisis of this magnitude? Yuval Levin is here to help us answer that. Michelle and I invited him because he's one of the most thoughtful, cool-headed conservatives writing about government today. He also has experience working in the White House under President George W. Bush, Yuval was a member of the domestic policy staff and the executive director of the President's Council on Bioethics. He's plenty critical of the Trump administration, but its failures don't rile him, at least not as obviously, as they do Michelle and me. Yuval, you've studied the federal government's response to this pandemic. Does it reflect and incorporate a sufficient regard for science? Well, I think the the first thing to keep in mind in in assessing the response we've seen so far is that this is, after all, a massive global crisis that came on suddenly that surprised everybody, including the experts. So there was bound to be some period in which our government was just overwhelmed and bumbling. This is a bigger crisis than any that was faced by the, the last couple of presidential administrations. And some problems, like the testing fiasco that resulted from mishandling by the FDA and the CDC, could easily have happened in any administration. I I do think that there's a more significant problem in this administration's response that I would describe not as a technical or logistical failure, but as a kind of decisional dysfunction, a a continuing inability to build a coherent structure of decision-making around the president and to enable the federal government to handle the enormous strain of this crisis And that does have to do with President Trump just thinking out loud and living in the news cycle rather than in the kind of logistical cycle that the government has to live in now. So there are days when he listens to the people around him and his advisors inside and out of government. There are days when he just repeats things that he heard on God knows where. 
And the, the, the real trouble when you think about this in the context of executive crisis management in our, in our history is that there's not a consistent, coherent strategy. That's in part a problem of not listening to experts, but it's mostly a total lack of focus that has just been absolutely disabling for our, for our federal government. Michelle, is that too generous and maybe a bit too cool-headed? <laughs> yes, I think it's way too generous. I mean, I think there's two parts of this, right? Yuval's obviously right that, you know, this has blindsided governments all over the world, right? Governments I would consider admirable, governments I would consider despicable, have both been um, in some cases, seen their societies disabled by coronavirus. And there are countries in Europe that have higher death rates per capita, although not higher death rates total than ours do. I think the difference between, say, Italy and Spain is that we had the opportunity to see what happened in Italy and Spain and use the time between um, it kind of reaching that level in America to you know, to, to, to take precautions, to speed up production of PPE and ventilators and, you know, kind of call for social distancing the way they did on the West Coast and, you know, and were able to really head off some of the worst carnage that we're seeing on the East Coast. And so I think in terms of Trump's personal culpability, it's threefold, right? First, there are these, there's this story in the Washington Post about U.S. intelligence agencies issuing multiple warnings in classified briefings in January and February. He also has, you know, kind of systematically purged the government of responsible professionals Right. So we saw the removal of the person who's basically in charge of the American vaccine effort in the federal government was reportedly removed because he questioned the president's fixation on hydroxychloroquine, which tests have now shown that this official was right to question. And then the third part is that he kind of keeps giving these, you know, demagogic, fact free wildly erratic press conferences that all of us can kind of be sophisticated about it and say, yes, we're used to a president who lies and talks out loud and, you know, floats weird musings and nobody takes him seriously. But actually, people in this country do take him seriously. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that there are people in this country who watch television and think that the president of the United States wouldn't just randomly say something and must at least know know something of what he's talking about. You know, your, your point that the that any government is going to be overwhelmed by this and that, that no government, despite, you know, reading papers or getting briefings is going to totally expect this to happen when it comes. That That's an important one. But Michelle notes, and this has been noted in many places, and I've never seen a compelling contradiction of it, um, that Trump has gutted federal agencies, that he has certainly sent the signal with whom he has chosen and whom he's discarded, uh, that he doesn't have much regard for expertise, that he's not someone who cares greatly for science. Aren't those chickens coming home to roost right now? Oh, absolutely. I think that's an element of what's going on here. And both in terms of attitude toward expertise, but also as a matter of just filling federal offices. I mean, the fact is, this administration has had a very unusual number of either vacant, uh, important offices throughout the the bureaucracy, or people who are uh, filling offices as acting directors of this or that when there ought to be a Senate-confirmed appointee. 
And that kind of thing matters in a moment like this. I mean, a moment of crisis is when you have to have a reliable chain of command. People have to have confidence that the process that they're called on to be part of makes sense. And that's got to be built in good times so that it can serve you in bad times. And I think there's no question that this administration has failed to build a functional chain of command around the president. Very senior officials have spent their time deciding on their own which which orders to take seriously and which not. We've seen evidence of this over and over in different parts of the government. And that just can't happen in a crisis like this, where you can't have people making different decisions in different places in the government. In crisis, we really do call on the president to do two things in particular, to, to coordinate federal action and to communicate to the public the nature of the strategy and uh, reasons to be calm while it's going on. And this president obviously has not done either of those things. So I, I, I do think we've suffered uniquely because of failures of leadership here. But I would only say it's important to put that in perspective. There are ways that the United States has done better than, uh, than, than some European countries. Our health system has done better on the whole. Federalism has served us well. Uh, there are certainly ways we've done worse. And I think a lot of those have to do with leadership at the very top of the federal government. But what I don't understand is sort of how you can concede um – you know, leadership failures on that scale and then still, I don't know, minimize alarm about this presidency, except maybe out of a kind of temperamental anti-anti-Trumpism. Yeah, I don't minimize alarm. I'm I'm a critic of Trump. I have been from the beginning, from before the beginning. So I, I, I'm, I certainly wouldn't suggest that there's not a reason to be alarmed here. I would just say that our system is bigger than the president and that on the whole, if you look at the system as a whole, again, our health system, if you look at how governors have reacted uh, and that is a function of the way our constitution is designed. We have ways of handling problems even when the president is failing. But I certainly wouldn't deny that the president is failing. So you, you do have governors who've responded really admirably, but all of them have been pretty clear that there are certain things that it's very difficult for them to do, that yes, they can procure some of their own equipment, but it puts them in a position of competing against each other and bidding up the prices. And so, you know, federalism has been maybe a, a backstop for a totally failed federal response. But I don't see how even the the most kind of, I don't know, avid um, proponent of states' rights could see that this should be, you know, that kind of testing and the procurement of some of this equipment and a coordinated response should be the responsibility of governors. Yeah. No, I, I, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, public health as a general matter is the responsibility of the states, but obviously there's a huge role here for the federal government. And in a lot of ways it has failed. Now, I, I wouldn't just discount the enormously important work that a lot of men and women in a lot of different places in the federal government have been doing well in this process. They have been disserved by the president in some important ways. But we've seen an incredible mobilization in response to an early failure on testing, for example. And that matters. I mean, it, it's taken too long. It was too hard to do. I, I would just, the reason I stress at the outset that this really is a massive crisis. I mean, this actually is the big one that, that everyone in public health has always been preparing for, but somehow never quite believed was really coming. And that means that our government was going to be overwhelmed, whatever happened here. The, the question is not, was our, was our government ready? The question is, have we responded and mobilized since then in the way that we should have? The answer to that in a lot of ways at the federal level is no. Uh, and there's no question that the president has had a lot to do with that. 
But we should also see that there are some impressive ways that the American federal government and certainly the states have have responded impressively. And we're getting our act together. You know, the public did react. I, I would say I've been surprised at the willingness of the American public to basically shut things down the way we have in the course of a couple of weeks. I think we're now in the course of the next few weeks going to start gradually reopening things. And I would just say, I mean, maybe I'm I'm overly influenced by my own experience working in a White House and working on some issues like this on a much smaller scale. I think pandemonium in response to a crisis this massive is unavoidable. The question is, how do you mobilize? And we are mobilizing despite some, some enormous problems at the time. Yuval, you have written uh, that the way we recover from this will hinge in great measure on the rapid development of treatments. And that's science. That's research. Do you really have confidence that the climate exists right now, the climate established in large measure by the Trump administration and by the president, that the climate exists to facilitate and speed that research as much as we would want it to be? When we have a president who called climate change a hoax, who wondered about windmills causing cancer, is that really a situation in which we are going to get the best, fastest from the world of science? Well, look, I certainly wish he hadn't done all those things and then some, but I think that the American biomedical enterprise, which is an academic and government and private sector enterprise, is rising to this challenge in some impressive ways. I think there needs to be more urgency on the part of the federal government, and that's Congress and the president in pushing for treatments for the worst cases here, because that's the only real near-term way out. Vaccine will be great when it comes, but that's a long way off. And I would say we haven't seen the necessary urgency yet. Congress passed another bill uh, just last week that patched some of the uh, problems in the CARES Act and did not focus on treatment in the way they might have, did not empower the NIH in the way they might have. In some ways, we're lucky here. I think the National Institutes of Health is an extraordinarily well-run institution in this moment. Its leadership is serving it very well. Uh, But they need resources, and that means Congress and the president have got to be ahead of the curve. They can't be responding to problems that they failed to address two weeks ago all the time. They have to be thinking about what we're going to need in the coming months. And and so far, that is not happening. Michelle, is Congress as culpable as the president? So, look, there's I think there's a lot of priorities that Congress should be funding and that they aren't. I think that to some extent, Democrats have been really hamstrung by the fact that things that should be consensus positions like more money for testing or more money for hospitals have been treated by Republicans in Congress as concessions that Democrats have to wring out of them in exchange for a bill. But I'm not sure that you can blame the House of Representatives for having to deal with the, you know, kind of total obstructionist nihilism of Mitch McConnell. In terms of the just the federal government, I think obviously Yuval is right that there's a lot of, you know, important and admirable work happening on the kind of professional level out of sight of, you know, the political wrangling. But I do think that it seems pretty clear that there was a directive from above, again, in terms of treatments, to focus on hydroxychloroquine because it was recommended by the medical experts on Fox News. And I don't know that we totally know the extent to which those directives have um deformed research priorities. You know, there's obviously been massive investments in just buying up hydroxychloroquine, and it's not clear that all of those pills are now going to be 
useful. And so I just I don't know the full picture of kind of the opportunity cost of the federal government being directed to this fixation of Trump's at the expense of other things. I keep going back in my head to the images of Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci um, at those briefings, not just because they're the generator of all sorts of internet, you know, Twitter gifts and memes and stuff. But when I watch them do that tightrope walk, you know, where they have to try to give good information, but not try to correct, contradict the president. Um, I mean, it seems almost impossible to find the right language for them. And I think if this is what it means to advise this president, if this is the way in which the people around him feel hamstrung and feel gagged, I don't know how he can be a president who leads us effectively and as quickly as possible out of this. <laughs> Tony Fauci has a real job, and it's an important job right now. It's one of the most important jobs in our government, and he has to spend an enormous amount of his time both preparing for and actually going through those kind of bizarre public spectacles. Robert Redfield is at these press conferences a lot. He works in Atlanta. He runs the agency that is in charge of responding to this pandemic on behalf of our country. It is bizarre that they have to spend this much time basically soothing the president's ego in public. Yuval, Tony Fauci's been on my radar for decades because way back in the day I wrote about AIDS, and he was very involved in the response to that. And yesterday I was doing a long interview with Lori Garrett. She wrote uh, the book The Coming Plague, and then she wrote a book called Betrayal of Trust. And if anyone was a Cassandra of this crisis, it's Lori Garrett. And I was asking her, uh, since she did predict that we would be in a moment somewhat like this at some point, given all the failures of society and the things that we were not preparing for, I asked her what surprised her about this moment, since she predicted so much else. And she said it was the way in which our federal government had been depopulated, gutted to an extent where it could not be ready for this. And she reminded me, going back to the AIDS crisis, that back then you heard experts from the CDC, you saw experts from the CDC, the CDC initials, the CDC logo were a part of your consciousness because it was such a robust organization and it was so centrally involved. That's not the case now. And we're paying a really steep price for it, are we not? I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and you know, part of it is in some ways the, the, the political leadership of these organizations, the appointed leadership is trying to protect some of the career officials from getting caught up in the daily circus which means they end up being less visible, less involved, less engaged. I worked with Tony Fauci back in 2005 and six. I was, I was a health policy staffer in the Bush White House. And we actually went through a whole process of, of pandemic preparedness. Uh, the, literally, the president had read a book about the 1918 flu and came back from Texas saying, we need to think about what we would do if this happened now. And we went through a two-year process uh, where we basically thought through how would, the president, how would the government respond to a pandemic influenza. And Tony Fauci obviously was right at the center of those efforts. And it was very striking how his, his level of experience, the, the calm and the knowledge that he built up over decades would be so crucial in any response. And I think it's very hard now for him to deploy that experience, that authority, because he spent so much of his time Again, trying to uh, play his part in the circus so that he can do his job the rest of the time. Yuval Michel said if a Democratic president were behaving this way, were leading the crisis this way, every Republican would be calling for his or her resignation. Do you agree with that? I'm not sure. I don't know if calling for resignation is something you'd see very often. I mean, I think we would have seen 
Uh, just given the atmosphere of the last few years, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, we probably would have seen some kind of impeachment process, as we have seen around Trump. But in a crisis like this, I don't know. It's very hard to say how people would have been responding. I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable here, Yuval. Would you feel more secure right now as an American in this pandemic with Hillary Clinton as president? No, that doesn't make me uncomfortable. I, I think in this case, I would. There would have been a lot that I would disagree with the with, with a President Hillary Clinton about, and there's some that I disagree with the President Donald Trump. I, I didn't have anybody to vote for last time. It doesn't seem like I will this time. And I certainly think there are a lot of ways in which almost anybody who could plausibly have been president would be doing a better job now. Because President Trump's sense of what the presidency is, is so performative, is so rooted in his own background as a kind of uh, reality television figure. He's the first of our presidents who has not been either a senior military officer or a high-ranking elected or other official in our government before becoming president. And, you know, we've been lucky that we haven't had a crisis like this that has called on that level of experience in the past few years. But here we are. Now we do. And it shows that that experience is not there. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, is this just what happens when science becomes partisan? If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short, that's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Beyond the president's disregard for science, there's the arguably bigger problem of science literacy in this country. Does it even exist? Can an uninformed public tell the difference between information and misinformation? Michelle, how much does that concern you? Well, tremendously. And it's concerned me for a long time, right? It's obviously a huge problem in terms of climate change, in terms of, you know, all sorts of health and safety regulations. And I think you've seen the kind of grim results of it in both, well, in, in all sorts of ways, right? In the weird denialism about the virus's danger. And I say weird because it comes from, you know, it, some sectors of the right that have been most kind of concerned about a culture of life, about, you know, kind of liberalism's tendency towards eugenics have now basically taken the position that there are more important things in society than protecting the weak, you know, particularly the health of the economy. And so you've just seen the extent to which political polarization trumps everything, even concern for your own constituents and, and the lives of your own voters. You know, I think you see some of the people who are at these reopen protests, which, you know, let's be clear, are still a 
kind of fringe group. And in some ways, I wish that they had, hadn't been treated as such a kind of manifestation of the popular will, right? Um, but you see, you know, a lot of them saying that if there is a vaccine, they won't take it, right? Because there's this Venn diagram overlap between people who don't believe that the coronavirus is that dangerous and people who believe that va- that vaccines are dangerous. And so that could end up being a problem when we need to get very quickly, if there is a vaccine, we're going to need to get very quickly to herd immunity if you have a lot of vaccine denialism. And, you know, to be clear, you've got you've got vaccine denialism on the left too, but I think it's more marginalized, at least within left-wing politics, right? Yeah. Well, I look, I, I think that the, the this basic question of science literacy is a problem, is a concern. As Michelle says, you see it in some ways on the margins of both political parties or both sides of our politics. The left has some blind spots on science sometimes around, in some ways around vaccinations, maybe around nuclear energy, in some ways even around abortion. The right has some of these blind spots, especially around environmental issues. But it it seems to me what we're seeing here has more to do with a, a kind of resentment of expertise that also has very deep roots in American life, where people view experts as trying to exercise power over them rather than as applying knowledge to addressing social problems. And again, there's a certain kind of postmodern version of that on the left, but there's a more populist and and broader form of it on the right. And, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that play out. I mean, it is marginal. If you look at the polls, most Republicans support the the restrictions that they're living under now and social distancing and the rest of it, large majorities Certainly, even larger majorities of Democrats support them. These these protests represent, at this point at least, a very narrow sliver of the public. Uh, but it's they're part of the public debate. And I think as we move into a phase of starting to gradually lift restrictions in different places, uh, we'll probably see these kinds of arguments e- even more on the surface. I was talking to somebody recently from Edelman, you know, the the um, public opinion agency that does these trust barometers where they me- measure people's trusts um, mm-hmm. across different countries and different institutions. And, you know, the United one of their points is that the United States is a low trust country. But one of the things that that this guy said to me when I was talking to him about public trust in the context of coronavirus is that you know, upper middle class people tend to have more trust in institutions because institutions, they understand the better and they've worked better for them. And, you know, whereas, um, you know, people whose only kind of interfaces with bureaucrats are hostile and frustrating have much less trust in public institutions. There's also a way that pandemics in particular or epidemics bring out a certain kind of conspiracy mindedness whether that's the the anti-Semitism that rose up around the Black Death in Europe or the horrible stories about yellow fever in Philadelphia in the 1790s where really prominent physicians persuaded the public that people uh, of African descent were immune to yellow fever. And so they were sent out to do all the all the horrible work. Um, and of course, they were not immune and, and there was just immense human suffering around it. Th- this this the moment of an epidemic tends to bring out the worst uh, in a society's underlying attitudes, and conspiracy has always been a part of that. And a moment like this is just bound to bring them out. But there's a, there's a dynamic we're not mentioning, especially relevant when you say conspiracy theories. We're not mentioning the the scourge of the internet, right? I mean, you can't 
you can't separate resentment of expertise from the degree to which everyone now feels that he or she is his, his or her own expert. You know, they go out, they click, they can find the information they want. It's usually the exact answer they've been looking for that validates what they already thought. But I feel like we can't talk about any of this stuff, the polarization, the partisanship, the resentment of expertise, unless we reckon with what the internet and social media have done to fracture people, to use the word from your book title, Yuval, right? The Fractured Republic. You got into this there, right? What the internet has done to us. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting because one of the things it brings out is a, a kind of misunderstanding of the nature of expertise, where people tend to think that the expert is just a person with information. And so now information is available anywhere, and so anybody can be an expert. But an expert is a person with experience. And what you find in people like Tony Fauci or Deborah Brooks, these are people with decades of experience making decisions in crises like this, and they have a sense, a kind of knack for how things go. That kind of experience is really what expertise brings to the table. It can't be replaced by a Google search, uh, but when we fail to have an appreciation of what it is that they offer decision makers, what they offer the larger society, then we do tend to think, well, now I know. I can look it up, and so I know better than you, and I understand what this model says. And, I, and you know, you get people who become kind of uh, amateur epidemiologists arguing with one another over the dinner table. But do we not have right now President Google search? I mean, isn't he modeling and encouraging that very behavior? How many times have we heard President Trump say, someone said, or they say, yeah. or I heard? Or I mean, he's, he's, he's the model of that. I mean, I actually think President Google search is a little bit optimistic. We have like President <laughs> Reddit comment thread, right? We have President 4chan. What can we do to get back to a place where there is more respect for actual knowledge, for proven expertise? For science. Well, look, I mean, look, the only way that you get there politically is to vote for Democrats. I mean, that's just a fact, <laughs> right? You're, that is, if you have a Democratic administration, you're going to have an administration that respects um, science and expertise because respect for science and expertise has become a matter of partisan polarization. Um, I don't think anyone has the answer to sort of how you um, – tame the epistemological chaos that the internet and kind of social fracturing has brought us. But maybe another part will be greater respect for scientists, greater respect for doctors. Yuval, this resentment of expertise, this polarization of science, how much of that is a failure of public education? And what kind of role might public education be able to play to repair it? Well, I think there's an element of it that's about education, but it seems to me to be in particular a a collapse of our political culture, uh, a sense that what happens in our politics just isn't very serious. And it seems to me that there's not the, the solution to that isn't simply to say, as uh, as former Vice President Biden said this week, that if he's elected, then the science will settle questions. I, I actually don't think that's quite right as an understanding of the president's job. The president has to take advice from all kinds of directions, from all kinds of areas, from all kinds of experts. In a case like this, you would have to hear the scientists and take them seriously. You'd also have to hear people who express concerns and offer facts about the state of the economy. And you have to make trade-offs. It's an extremely difficult job. And it, you know the, the, the solution to the kind of frivolity that we see now in the president's attitude toward his job isn't just about science. It's about a more profound understanding of the purposes of all of our different institutions, including our political institutions. 
I think our, our political culture has become anti-institutional in, in recent decades in a way that has, has had just immense costs for our country. And a recovery of some respect for our institutions, certainly that includes science and the professions, it includes the academy, it also includes our constitutional system, I think just has got to be part of a way back. Now, there is a way that a crisis like this makes us more serious. We understand now. I think much better what it is that experts do and why it is that we need to take these things seriously. And it's imaginable that we come out of a crisis like this with a better attitude about these questions. Yuval, thank you for being with us. Uh, We really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. But before you go, before you go, one more thing. We'd love a recommendation from you. We like to leave our listeners with something to help take their minds off the news. Can you help us out? Well, uh, you know, I I think if you're lucky enough, uh, as I am, to have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old in your home, um, I've found that just going outside and playing catch every day is just about the best thing there is for my soul. Um, (laughs) It's something we started doing to to mourn the baseball season, but by now it's just this great soul-opening ritual for us every day. Uh, I I pretend I do it for them, but they're doing it for me, and it's, it's the best thing in my life just now. Michelle, you must have some sort of equivalent with your kids, right? Well, yeah, I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. Neither of them really like to play catch. Um, my son inherited his parents' complete disinterest in sports. I guess our um, <laughs> equivalent would be our equivalent would be climbing. The property that we're on has this kind of gorge with this stream and a and a kind of felled tree that you can use to cross it. And it's actually extremely dangerous. And my kids completely love climbing down and going across it. So, but, you know, in general, I think getting outside every day, which is, you know, easier for some people than others, but is, you know, the only thing standing between me and total madness. Thank you, too, for leaving me and everyone else with those images of the outdoors and fun. I think we all need them right now. (laughs) That's our show this week. Thank you for listening. And thanks again to Yuval Levin for joining us. If you want to check out more of his work, head to nationalaffairs.com. You can also buy his most recent book, which came out earlier this year, A Time to Build. It's about reviving American institutions. Do you have any good advice on how to talk with someone whose basic facts are different from yours? Let us know. Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you're liking what you're hearing, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Doing that helps other people find the show. The Argument is produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, and Michele Teodori. This was our first week without Ian Prasad Philbrick, and we want to thank him for all his hard work on the show. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Also, special thanks this week to our de facto audio assistant, Michelle's husband, Matthew Ipcar. Keep arguing responsibly, and we'll see you back here next week. I always screw up the pronunciation of Ross's last name, although I've known him for a decade. So before I screw <laughs> it up right now and giving us Twitter handle, I did not. I couldn't say, do it until we started doing this show. <laughs> <laughs>
When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.